The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. Continuing with the teacher's practice phrases. Don't seek others' pain as the limbs of your own happiness. You know, while some of these phrases we've been studying are clearly using Buddhist language, referring to Buddhist practices, in essence, they're very simple and they're very universal in their humanity. We think about all the ways in which the Dharma points out the ways in which we create binding karma, create suffering, unhappiness, division, conflict. And because there is no intermediary, has for all of these centuries really focused singularly on the creator of heaven and hell, the troublemaker, which is you (laughs) and me. And so these teachings that are as relevant today for us as they were in the 10th century, as they were in the time of the Buddha, are telling us that we haven't changed that much. Human beings, human nature is what it has been for a long time. For how many years and generations and centuries have human beings been ruled and ruled others from their bewilderment, their confusion, their attachment, their greed and anger, pride and jealousy, whether they were aware of it or not. And so in that way, they are universal and timeless, but also essentially they are of the moment, because otherwise we can't use them. So that helps us to understand what, what is necessary for the Dharma to be true. It has to be universal. It has to be true in every time and place for every person any, in any culture who is seeking, who can hear, who is asking those questions. So it has to be universal because it can't keep changing. The, the basic principle can't keep changing or otherwise it will go out of fashion. It will no longer be useful. But it also has to be completely useful in every time. The teachings of rebirth are that we come back to live again out of grasping. You know, in in the West, where we kind of don't want to ever die, we want to live forever, people can hear that teaching of rebirth as the good news, right? You get to have it all over again. But you think carefully, yeah, you have to do it all over again. (laughs) Puberty, high school. (laughs) I remember one student who started out as a Zen kid, kids, and uh, then became a practitioner in her own right, and was in high school, 
and would talk often about the trials and challenges of high school and all of it, the social scene. And I, you know, kept trying to bring the Dharma, meditation, all the different ways of Buddhism teaching. And at a certain point, I said, you know, you just have to get through it. <laughs> See it through, and then you can start making some other decisions. Um, and even if we do come into practice, as many of us do, maybe most of us, with some degree of self-interest, if not a lot of self-interest, in a way that's okay. Because the Dharma takes that and transforms it, takes that great force, which is the force of our delusion, and samsara, and transforms it into the path, turns it around into awakening to wisdom and compassion. If everybody, if all people, as Buddhism teaches, all living things seek life, enjoyment, freedom from pain and suffering, then it's reasonable to ask, well, then why do we create so much of it? Right? Why do we have such a propensity for that? As Shantideva said, I want to be free of suffering, but I keep going back and picking up the causes again and recreating them. So given how intelligent we are, or how intelligent we think we are, <laughs> like, what's that about? But Buddhism is not so invested in the whys. Why this, why that, but rather the how. How are we doing that? What is it that we're doing? And in doing it, what is the what of what we're doing? There is something going on, but what is the nature of that which is going on? There are desires and emotions, impulsive consciousness, clashes, attachments, things that we grasp to internally and externally, but what is the nature of those things, of the grasping itself, of the desire that generates it, of the seeming person who is doing all of that? That's what Buddhism is bringing our attention to. Why do all of these inclinations, these propensities, have so much power. Why do they have so much power? Even here, even given the best of circumstances. I mean, to practice in a situation like that is basically the best circumstances we can pretty much get. And still, we struggle. We are, even when we deeply want to free ourselves. We are weary of those habits and patterns and their consequences, and yet still they arise. And so Buddhism is, is deeply interested in that, because that's how we can free ourselves. And, and so then that means we have to become very adept at our delusion, not at perpetuating it, but at recognizing it, understanding it, meeting it skillfully. All dharmas agree on one point. All the teachings, all the practices are to realize and actualize this one point. Liberation from the illusory self. And remember that the sense of self that arises in various moments, self-awareness, the sense that you might have right now that you are listening, that I am speaking, that sense of self arising is just an aspect of our consciousness. It's not a mistake. From a Buddhist perspective, it's not the problem. What creates the difficulty is that we impute into that the sense that there is someone, 
because I can think about myself, I can talk about myself, I can stand apart and look back at myself, well, golly, there must be a self, right? There must be someone who is at the center of all of that. I haven't used that word in a long time. (laughs) Judy Leaf said, it is embarrassing to realize how much of our own happiness seems to be based on the suffering of other beings. Even worse, we find that at times we go so far as to hope that someone else suffers because we know we'll benefit from their pain. We hope that someone else will lose so that we can win. We develop a kind of dog-eat-dog or your pain, my gain mentality. I mean, that's kind of, you know, the basic game plan of samsara. It's, it's, it's a pretty merciless realm, right? You win or you lose. You're ahead or you're behind. You're only as good as your last meal, your last accomplishment. Someone's always breathing down your neck, right? And so... How are we not going to bring the degree to which we have inculcated that within ourselves? We have learned what we were taught. That's what we're supposed to do as youngins. Learn from your world. Learn from your elders. Follow the examples of those around you. That's how we figure out what the world is and how to navigate it. So, of course, we're going to bring that into practice. We're going to apply those very things, those very beliefs and attitudes and and practices into our practice. And the funny thing is, to some degree, they will work, right? Because they worked in life. But they don't entirely. And what tends to happen is at a certain point, they really start not working, right? We've kind of used up in practice any good that those have supplied us. And that's a good thing, because then we realize something else more fundamental has to shift. And we bring it into not just our practice, but our, within relationships, intimate relationships, friendships, family systems, often in the name of loving and caring. This is how I love you. As one old friend of mine said, well, if this is love, I'm not interested. And then we bring it into social systems as individuals become larger. A community, a business, a government, a nation. And so it makes perfect sense that what we see happening in the world is just what happens within us writ large. In the continuous thread meeting that I had with many of you who are doing this with us this week, Um, because folks are doing continuous thread, often are more connected to news and what's going on. And so a number of people are bringing up the the violence and the fighting in the Middle East, as well as Ukraine and Russia. You know, and like, who's right? Who's wrong? Whose side are you on? And I said, if we consider our vows, sentient beings are numberless, I vow to alleviate them. Which ones? All of them. In what countries? All of them. On which sides? All of them. That's the the magnitude of that vow.
Of course, violence has to be stopped. But how do we actually end the conflict? As we see, ending the violence itself is not very easy, but ending the conflict is immeasurably more difficult because that just continues, held in the hearts and minds of everyone, really. Winner, loser, victor, vanquished. So how do we end the conflict? As long as only one side matters, as only one tribe or group or person or perspective, then there will never be peace. I mean, our own country is an ongoing example of that. I used to wonder growing up in Georgia why the war, when people would speak about it, was a civil war, not the First World War, not the Second World War. Why was it still so alive? Why was it still so present in people's consciousness? And then as I got older and really began to study history and studied more deeply the more of the realities from an historical perspective of not just the causes, but the war itself, the destruction, the catastrophic um, catastrophe. It made more sense in a way that it was not over. And needless to say, because the conflict itself had never been resolved. Judy says, this slogan is about exploitation. It's about taking advantage of others in order to maintain our wealth, our privilege. It could also be applied to our attitude, to our Mother Earth. It's about the habit of take, 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 with no gratitude, with blindness as to the consequences. And so think about, Arjun Sensei talked last night about Samantabhadra and offerings, making offerings. Why do we make so many offerings? Why do we do prostrations? What are we doing? In the early years when liturgy was such a hot button for people. Um, it may be hard to imagine that, but it was such a thing. Every retreat, it was a thing. <laughs> people were like, bow. What are you talking about, bow? I thought you guys spit on the Buddha. You know, people had this idea it was iconoclastic. It was like tear it all down. It was do whatever you want. That was freedom. And Dada Roshi used to say, we need to learn how to bow. We need to learn how to bow. How to express gratitude. How to receive and to give. And so just think about all the ways, just throughout every day of session that's happening. All throughout the day. And to be very cognizant, very aware of the consequences of our actions. The Buddha said, there is no path. There is no liberation without understanding karma. You know, I was thinking about the <clears throat> Angulamala, which most of you are probably familiar with, the story of Angulamala in the time of the Buddha. And there's a sutra um, with his name. Angulamala was a, a person who lived at the time of the Buddha and who was basically a mass murderer. And so it's kind of hard to conceive of how this was all happening, but according to the sutras, he was just running rampant across the countryside and people were scared to death and he was just creating devastation everywhere he went. And one day the Buddha <clears throat> was going to seek, was to beg, going to beg for his, his daily meal. And a bunch of farmers and people working in the field saw him walking down this road and they said, no, don't go down there, don't go down there, that's where Angulamala lives. 
That's where he's hiding. He'll kill you. And it said, with, when this was said, the blessed one just kept going in silence. So I have to think, what was going on in his mind? What was he thinking? Did he feel like he could do some good? Did he feel like somehow he would be protected? When Angulimala saw him coming down, he said, it isn't amazing. He said, so many people have fallen into my hands, and now here's this contemplative coming, alone, without any companion. Why don't I kill him too? And so he took up his sword and shield and buckled his bow and quiver and followed right behind the Buddha to catch up with him. And it says, the Buddha willed by a feat of psychic power such that Angulamala, though he was running with all of his might, could not catch up with the Buddha, who was just walking at a normal pace. Then the thought occurred to Angulamala, isn't it amazing? In the past, I've chased and seized a swift-running elephant, a horse, chariot, a deer. But now, even though I'm running with all my might, I can't catch up with this contemplative walking at a normal pace. So he stopped, and he called out, and he said, Stop, contemplative, stop. And the Buddha said, I have stopped. Now you stop. And Ungulamala thought, These Shakyan contemplatives are speakers of the truth. And yet this contemplative, even while walking, says, I have stopped. You stop. While he's walking, why don't I question him? And so he asked him. He said, I have, he said you say, I have stopped. But when I have stopped, you say, I haven't. What is the meaning of this? How have you stopped and I haven't? And <clears throat> the Buddha said, I have stopped, Angulamala, once and for all. I've been cast off all violence towards all living beings. You, though, are unrestrained towards beings. That's how I have stopped and you have not. And it said at that moment, Angulamada had a tremendous conversion of mind and heart and says, I will now go and abandon evil. And he threw away his weapons and he came to the Buddha and asked to become a monastic. And the Buddha, it said, the awakened one, the compassionate great seer, the teacher of the world, along with its devas, said to the Angulamala, come, monk. And that in and of itself was bhikkhuhud, was his ordination. So then he became a disciple of the Buddha. And so that's a whole sort of thing unto itself. So how was he able to become a, a disciple, which meant people knew where he was? He'd become a monk and he wasn't, you know, brought before a court or however they handled these things back then. But it said what he, he and he was said to be a good monk, a, a disciplined, sincere monk. It said, but in the more early one morning, he went out in his robes to beg for his meal. And at that time, a clod of dirt was thrown by one person who hit him on the body. And then a stone was thrown by another person. A clay pot was thrown and hit him on the body. His head broke open. It was dripping with blood. His bowl, begging bowl, was broken. And his outer robe was ripped to shreds. And so I went to the Buddha. Because he's now a disciple of the Buddha. He's a part of the Sangha. And he went to the Buddha for help. And the Buddha saw him coming and says, Bear it, Brahman. Bear with this. 
the fruit of the karma that would have burned you in hell for many years, hundreds of years, thousands of years, you are now experiencing in this moment, at this time. So what that's telling us is even though Angulamala had a a transformation of his heart and was dedicating himself to living in a transformed way, bringing forth life rather than destroying it, taking responsibility rather than abdicating it, that his karma was still very active. The Buddha could not take that away. And so he said, you have to bear this. This is the consequences of your actions. It has to be borne out until it is exhausted. That's why the Buddha said, we are heirs to our karma. That's why we, only we can atone for our own actions. We can't atone for somebody else. And so, to not seek others' pains as a source of our own happiness, and just to think about the small ways for most of us, but sometimes in more demonstrable ways. People we love, if we're angry, if we're hurt, usually we know exactly how to hurt them. We know their most vulnerable places. And in that, we might get a feeling of of pleasure in hurting them back or just hurting them out of our own anger. And we see how that works. Think about, she mentions how we bring this upon our own Mother Earth, how we use the Earth as our supermarket, a, a place of resources rather than a living thing, and also a dump, all in one. We're dependent on it in every conceivable and inconceivable way. And the earth has such a profound intelligence that when it's, any of its ecosystems are disrupted, brought out of balance, that its own intelligence will bring that back into a state of balance. It restores itself. Every living thing has that capacity. We, too, have that capacity. But we have to learn how to work with what we are, who we are. And if we can do that, if we can live in accord with our own system in its entirety, that's why we have to practice as a whole. We can't separate the mind from the body, a thought from an emotion, a right from a wrong an enlightenment from a delusion. That's a false, a false action. And it, it doesn't bring us closer because it's false. We have to practice it as an integrated whole. And in doing that, we begin to understand and make contact with our own deep intelligence, our own wisdom. And then if we can do that with ourselves and then we can do that with others, that's a good thing. Because not only are we working together, right, in a sort of observable, moral way, let's say, or on the basis of agreement, but more from within, in terms of an underlying principle, the basic nature of who we are. 
you know, that's what makes practices in Buddhism that could be looked at as just moral teachings. Like these phrases, many of them are just good to do, anybody. And many of them, all of them, really, if they're understood, they don't all need Buddhist language to explain, would be good for the person doing them. But what makes them Buddhist, what makes them Buddha Dharma, is that they're all, they all have one, they all have one intention. They're, it's not just about living a moral life. That moral li- living a moral life is indivisible from living an awakened life, from our meditation, from cultivating compassion. All of these things are dependent upon each other. So to not seek others' pain is the limbs of our own happiness, which is another way of say, saying seek others' well-being for your own happiness. If you want to be happy, make somebody else happy. If you want to have well-being, work to bring well-being to others. To not find happiness or pleasure in, in another's pain, we could also look at that at, within ourselves, how we can cause pain to ourselves and derive from that a kind of pleasure. That's the power of an identity. When we, have, when we are self-critical, when we are, don't have faith in ourselves, when we expect to fail, when we don't think we're worthy. And that's, we have wedded ourselves to that identity through repetition and probably through a lot of help from those around us then in perpetuating that, in, in making that true again, there's a kind of, relaxa- kind of, not relaxation, but a comfort in that because I know who I am in that place. As that person, I know who I am. And so I can kind of, I, I can be in that familiar place. And that's a kind of pleasure. And that's part of why it's so hard to break that cycle. when another's pain is experienced as our own pain, when the world's suffering sits in your heart, then, and we are committed to alleviating the suffering, which means we can't just get mired in that pain. There's no cookie for that, right? You don't get rewarded for that in Buddhism, for making yourself miserable because other people are miserable. There's no valor in that. But to be vulnerable enough, open enough to experience that pain is a, is a, can be a tremendous motivator. Then we can work together. It said, according to the slogan, if our happiness is based on the suffering of others, if that is the only way to maintain it, it can't be true happiness. It can't be. True happiness is true, all the way. I was thinking of Abraham Lincoln's speech. If we could, a house divided against itself cannot stand. That when our happiness or well-being or pleasure or sense of ourself or worthiness is based on the diminishment of another, that's dividing this house and this house. And that cannot stand. In other words, there's no stability in that. There's, that is no, there is no way to build a foundation of 
a better way on that. And I looked at that speech, which was in 1858, um, and the beginning of that speech was, so this is, of course, before the Civil War, he said, if we could first know where we are and whither we are tending, we could better judge what to do and how to do it. If we could know where we are and know where we want to go, then we'd be much better at considering what do we need to do and how do we need to do it. He didn't know he was a Buddhist. (laughs) And so those who rise by standing on the heads of others, despite their wealth, can never know true happiness. They're antithetical. The Buddha said they can't abide within the same person. They work against each other. So that even fleeting, the fleeting happiness of samsara is diminished by the fear of loss. So when we find ourselves envious of the wealth or power or status of others who have achieved that by making others miserable, we shouldn't be jealous of that. The next is to not make gods into demons. Pema says, don't use these teachings and practices to strengthen your self-absorption. Why would we do that? Right? Why, would, why would any sincere practitioner do that? Well, entering into practice with a lifetime of grasping, building up the ego, competing, talked about the other day, wanting to be someone, that doesn't just stop. And at different stages along the way, it's interesting how all of these teachings and these cautions, these pointers, can appear at, at, at different stages along the way. And that can be very confusing. Like, well, does that mean the practice isn't working? Right? If something keeps arising, then it, that, from an ordinary perspective, that means it's not working. But the fact that it arises is because those habits are still strong and doesn't, say, doesn't describe how they arise. They don't continue to arise in the old way. They arise, but not in the same way. They're not experienced in the same way. They're practiced differently. Their duration, their intensity, their impact, their karma, All of that is subject to change. And that's why it's so important to keep practicing, to stay in the path, right? And and sort of be alert to our own self-satisfaction, complacency, lack of humility, so that we keep going. Trelig Kjalgon says, ensure that the medicine that you're applying, your Dharma medicine, is applied right where the illness is. Comport yourself as the caregiver of all sentient beings. It was reminding me of uh, Roshi years ago, was, uh, there was a group of students here doing Jakai training, and he told me he went into the Buddha hall to, give them a, to offer a talk one day, and as he walked in, he overheard them talking about how they were all going to do Jakai, which meant they were going to be a little bit senior to other people, and they're going to have a little bit of more mojo. And he walked in and he says, no, no, you've got it all wrong. 
He says, you, you now are becoming servants to the Sangha. This means you are now, you are standing up and being, in a sense, showing yourself out to serve. And so it means we need to keep seeing this obvious and subtle ways that the self keeps arising. You know, the t- there are many teachings that talk about how even when we have insight, we see into the emptiness of the self, of desires, of grasping itself, to be attached to things as illusion. That becomes, we, we are, when we have direct experience of that, we see it's illusory nature. We see that it is like building something in empty space. But the sense of self still arises. And the teachings acknowledge that. Right? They recognize that. That's been happening since the beginning. And that's not because we're doing something wrong. It's because that's the strength and the depth of those, those habit patterns. Which is also why it's important to continue. And to think about how training works, where in training there, you're, there's changing roles, changing positions. Part of the deal is, you know, more or less that people don't stay in positions too long so that they can begin to identify with them. This is who I am. This is my job. And also so that we keep moving. And even though there's generally a basic progression, for instance, like in Zendo service positions, that has nothing to do with high and low has nothing to do with, you know, somebody who's been around longer being a more superior person or more superior practitioner. It has more to do with integrating Zazen into that function, bringing selflessness, non-attachment into one's interactions with others, one's ability to be in a state of Zazen in a more complex moment where that responsibility is larger. I remember years ago when I was at the temple, many Sundays there was a student who would um, come in to, for caretaking, and I remember often seeing, seeing him cleaning bathrooms on his hands and knees, drenched in sweat when it was hot, and then do the, do the morning program, and then after the talk, he'd go out front and there'd be a company limousine waiting to take him off, to the company jet plane, which would fly him to Europe for his meeting with bigwigs in corporate worlds. That's what training is. Pliancy, flexibility. Judy says, it is possible to take the very best and turn it into the worst. When we first encounter the Dharma and mind training, We're so open, excited, it's so refreshing to encounter practical guidelines for developing wisdom and compassion and to find teachings we can actually apply in our everyday activities. Indeed. Isn't it wonderful? There is a path, there is a way, a very real possibility for living this life in a very different way and still living a very ordinary life that these teachings, that your inner anxiety or your anguish or your sadness is understood profoundly by these teachings. And that in that, you are not strange. You are not a stranger. You are not isolated. 
that there are teachings that you and I can study. We can actually study them and reflect on them. And then most importantly, practice them. Because otherwise, it's just more mental gymnastics. And that in that, they are not doctrines to be memorized and followed without question, but they're to be examined, tested. That there are practices we can learn and implement and train in and begin to develop our skill. That there are people you can walk this solitary path with who even without talking share an understanding. Share an understanding. That we can be deeply immersed in this world with its pain and suffering and and craziness without too much being overwhelmed, despairing, without using numbness as an antidote. We can study causation, not as a popular, you know, cocktail party conversation, but as a real living thing, as a vital, vitally important, critically important, the world depends upon it kind of thing. So that we can actually, genuinely shift these deeply set patterns of thought, of emotion, of speech, of action, in a way that's true, that's authentic. We can courageously practice opening our heart to others, loving our enemies, developing resilience, stamina, compassion. And we can do that while we're afraid. We can do that while we're doubting ourselves. We can do that while we feel that we are not worthy of doing such a thing. We can do that and hold all of that. We can cultivate these enlightened qualities so that we can move beyond a world that's reduced to friends and enemies. And very importantly, we can do all of this and so much more, more than we could ever imagine. No matter what state you're in, no matter what time it's, it is, time of day, time of life, no matter what place you're in, no matter what your mental state is. I remember my father was here when he finally came after years to see me here. He was here and we were getting some food. And he said, you know, if I think if I was younger, I might have been interested in this. I said, it's not too late, Dad. He said, no. So I said, no, no, it's not too late. (laughs) And that we can do that in any time, any place, within any state we might find ourselves. We can do it alone. We can do it with Sangha. We can do it with friends. We can do it with strangers. We can do it with enemies. And we can do it when those people we're with know that we're doing it, and we can do it when they haven't a clue. We can fall. We can fail, according to our own definition. And we can stand. We can do that. And we can do all of this by returning to the most original, natural, unconditioned, uncontrived state, which is already present within us. The teachings are really an invitation, a constant 
invitation within it without any expiration to continue to enter again and again, to open, to relax, to strengthen, to let fall away rather than build up. Judy says, we reach a crossroads where we can either continue to open or we can begin to shut down. It's quite simple. In one approach, we are trying to consume the Dharma. We're trying to fit the Dharma into our small-mindedness. And in the other, we are dissolving our small self into the vastness of the, di- of the Dharma. And to see all the ways in which we can do that, try and appropriate the Dharma, make it fit us. I come here and sort of mold itself around me. That's why there's an aspect of training that is unyielding, right? Unyielding, not because it's rigid, but so that we yield, right? So if I have a hard time getting to the zendo, right? On time in the morning, right? What's that about? What's going on, right? Am I waiting too long to get out of bed? Am I dawdling? Am I, like the point of that is to observe what am I putting in my, in my way, in your way, so that I can be here with all of you and we can start this day together. And so there are ways in which that's what renunciation is. No, I'd rather have this. Okay, but this is what it is. Thank you for your opinion. <laughs> but this is what it is. Nobody gets everything they want, right? And that can we actually step into that? And what do we have to yield? What do we have to release? What do we have to let go? What do we have to see? So that we're not appropriating, right? Which is not a transformation. It's a continuation of the same. Kazan Zenju said, just look back on your first determination of mind. What he's saying there is, He's, he's um, having faith that our original intention had a kind of purity to it. We weren't coming to compete. We weren't coming to appropriate. We weren't coming to be something. We were coming to actually address a fundamental matter, the great matter. So he says, look back on that first determination of mine, for it's hard to be as careful of the middle and the end as of the beginning. Right? We think it should get easier, 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 easier. And in many ways it does. But in other ways, we have to be careful. And so he says, keep looking back. Keep returning. Keep remembering. Keep starting again. Become an expert at being a student. <laughs> right? Become, be an expert at being a, at being a beginner. Because in the end... Although it can be so challenging, it's really about what is most simple. Cease from harm. Bring benefit into this world. It's said that Atisha, when he was meeting people on the road, rather than saying, how are you? He would ask, has your heart been kind? A reflection right into the center. And so these are the sorts of folks that have brought this down to us. So let us continue their gift. Thanks so much for listening. 
For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.